loving sairam and greetings from prashanti nilayam this is my ninth talk in the veda walk through series and in my previous talks i have attempted to give a reasonable broad brush overview of the vedas in this talk i wish to consider some matters that highlight how important and relevant the vedas are to modern times also in presenting my views i shall closely follow two important leads given by swami many of you i am sure have heard swami say from time to time that merely by chanting the vedas one cannot attain immortality and that sacrifice alone can lead to that goal this would be the first of the two leads i shall take from bhagwan the second concerns the hierarchy in creation as swami puts it the hierarchy is individual society nature and finally god the words that swami actually uses are vyashti for individual samashti for society srishti for nature and parameshti for god so vyashti samashti srishti and parameshti in this talk i shall focus on one how man must make sacrifice an important aspect of his life and two how man must especially in today's world pay careful attention to the interlinkages in creation let me start with sacrifice no doubt i have already said something on this subject in my last talk but i now wish to add something more the word sacrifice as used in english has a slightly bitter flavor because sacrifice usually implies giving up something that we like very much however there are other angles spiritual angles to be explicit and that is what i would now like to stress swami often says in his discourses and i am paraphrasing his words here i don't want you to give up your job position wealth family etc for me all i want you to do when you come here is to offer your bad habits to me if you are a smoker just say baba i give up my smoking habits for you that is the sacrifice i want when you give up smoking do you lose anything nothing whatsoever on the other hand you gain health what you are losing if at all anything is your attachment to a bad habit that's all you see how nicely swami puts it in the vedic context the word sacrifice always goes hand in hand with something good and even sublime and sacrifice always enhances purity thus as swami says the scriptures ask you to sacrifice so that you grow in purity okay let's say that we have a person who out of love for swami gives up all his undesirable habits one by one he grows in purity and has now become a good man does sacrifice come to a stop not quite it continues only sacrifice is now made in a different spirit so different that one no longer even thinks of it as sacrifice this may sound a bit confusing and so let me add a few words of explanation you see in the vedic world the word sacrifice is used in two distinct senses the first is in terms of giving up something to which one is very attached including bad habits the other meaning given to the word sacrifice is offering 
Thus, when a person becomes good by giving up all the bad habits to God, he now starts offering various things to God. Of course, always something good. Thus, he offers to God the food he has cooked, he offers poems he has written, he offers songs he has composed, and so on. In short, sacrifice becomes a non-stop process in which the devotee, swept by his love for God, keeps on making offerings to God. In the beginning, he offers bad habits. When he has run out of bad habits, he makes noble offerings to God. All offerings, both bad habits and the noble actions, please God, because they are all done with the same motive, namely to please God. God is pleased when we offer our bad habits to Him, because that is a signal that we are trying to improve ourselves. He is equally pleased when we offer our creations to Him, because that is a sign that we acknowledge our creativity to Him. I hope all this is clear. Sacrifice, the Vedic seers understood, was not an open-ended or a one-way street. Rather, it was a loop. You sacrifice for others, and others then sacrifice to sustain you. Here, of course, the word sacrifice is to be understood in a larger sense, not just that of giving up, but making an offering, not only in material terms, but in spiritual terms. Let us take the sun. Everyone, including atheists, would agree that if the sun were not there, we too would not exist. Whether we like it or not, it is the sun that sustains life on earth. The sun sustains life literally by burning itself out. That is to say, by sustaining a nuclear fire deep within and pouring out massive amounts of energy. Now one might argue, listen, the sun is an inanimate object. It burns because of the laws of nature. That is what it is supposed to do. That is what it is programmed to do. Thus, there can be no question of the sun sacrificing for you and me. After all, there are billions of other stars in our own galaxy, the Milky Way. Every one of these billions of stars burns just like the sun. And most of them do not have satellite planets like the earth. And therefore, they do not sustain any life. So, where is the question of sacrifice? And where is the question of being grateful to the sun? This is precisely the way in which most atheists of today would argue. I have heard plenty of such arguments. They are all high-sounding and very appealing to the so-called intellectual minds. Often, the people who make such arguments are high-profile people and many, especially the young, tend to imitate them. The net result is that ego runs amok. And when ego runs amok, you can bet that there would be nothing but disaster. Returning to the question of the sun, what do we offer in return? We can always offer gratitude. But do we do that? Let me now move on to the other aspect of Vedic thought, namely man's equation with society and nature. Swami says that anything that man does must not harm society, must not disturb nature in any way, and finally must not go against God. Since God is the creator of both the universe and man, it follows that man must be in harmony with both society and nature, both of which are parts or components of creation. I have already commented on this point in my previous talk, but like the subject of sacrifice, this topic too needs to be underscored further. 
earlier i pointed out that in the purusha suktam society is clearly and explicitly identified with god i personally find this to be a remarkable identification especially considering the fact that thousands of years ago not only was the population of the earth very small but in addition there was really no worthwhile means of transport or communications that could bring different segments of the population together easily as is possible these days if society is god then it automatically follows that one should not do anything that is against the interests of society supposing for the sake of argument one had done this in vedic times that is going against god in spite of this the impact on society in those days would have been mostly minimal nevertheless this concern for the impact of one's action on society was very much alive even then taking all these points into account i feel that the vedic view in this matter was a very far sighted approach consider for example the remark made by arjuna to krishna about the futility of war he says with the destruction of the family perished the age old traditions and virtue having been lost vice seizes the entire race what arjuna is implying is that when men are killed in tens of thousands families would be left without heads and this would cause all kinds of problems children would be fatherless and become undisciplined while women may take to wives to sustain themselves in other words war would destabilize society in a big way just look at the conflicts raging now in different parts of the world it becomes immediately clear that what arjuna feared then is actually happening these days but who is bothered wherever we turn we not only see acts that destabilize society but also severely disturb nature let me give some examples starting with excessive consumerism the business world is constantly compelling us through heavy advertisement to buy all sorts of things a good many of which we really do not need to illustrate my point let me take the example of video games first and foremost video games are a huge distraction these days when children have to study hard video games keep many children away from studies as a result many children score low marks and that makes many things difficult for them next thanks to the keeping up with the jones syndrome every time there's a new video game the parent is obliged to shell money to keep his kids happy as if this is not enough the video game machines themselves keep on changing with newer and newer frills added all the time and this means more expenditure apart from the disturbance caused to children few realize that disposing of the obsolete video game machines is a problem let us say 50 million of these machines have to be disposed of are you aware how much of beryllium lead mercury and such poisonous stuff gets thrown out into the environment and do you know how hazardous this job of dismantling discarded electronic equipment is by the way a lot of this dismantling is done in india vietnam and china because labor is so cheap here thus the video game machines used in and discarded by the first world 
end up in the third world for dismantling. Then again, take cars. The big companies, especially in overseas countries, want to sell lots and lots of cars in countries like India. In one sense, this looks like a good idea. Makes transport easier, creates so many jobs and whatnot. But look at the flip side. Firstly, every car adds to pollution. Next, thanks to our congested roads, the accidents increase sharply. Of course, the people selling cars would say, Oh no, the fault is not ours. People must drive more carefully. Those things are easily said, but we must learn to live with ground realities. Thirdly, in a country like India, where there is such a disparity in income, does it make sense for some to go around in a Rolls Royce? Yes, the Rolls has re-entered the Indian market again after 50 years. Going round in a Rolls when many don't even have enough to eat, is it at all decent? Is not such flaunting of wealth a vulgar display? Then there is the print media. There are so many magazines. Every magazine needs paper for printing and paper comes from trees. They may say that paper can be recycled, but I don't think we do much of recycling in countries like India. In effect, more of printing means cutting more trees. Is this a good idea, especially when much of what gets printed is pure rubbish? And then there is TV. My God, this TV is pure poison. How much of money is wasted on worthless TV? And how much electricity is consumed by this monster? TV keeps so many children away from the playing ground, spoils their eyes, and makes them fat and obese, not merely due to lack of exercise, but by driving them to consume a hell of a lot of soft drinks full of sugar and eat a lot of fatty food. There is a strong correlation between the advent of TV and the increase in child obesity and juvenile diabetes. In all the cases mentioned above, a few people, in the name of making more profit, are taking society for a ride. And the entire game is so cleverly marketed that people are made to think that all this is very good for them, giving them freedom to do what they please, etc. As a result of all this brainwashing, people have become so insensitive that they do not pay any attention to the social costs involved in giving a free play to media consumption, etc. Let me now turn to smoking. Smoking is promoted heavily by the tobacco industry. This in spite of the fact that more than 40 years ago, the Surgeon General of the United States categorically went on record saying that smoking causes lung cancer and greatly promotes heart disease. In the US, this warning caused an alarm and made many to give up smoking. And when the markets went down in America, the big tobacco companies started targeting people in other countries, particularly countries like India. In fact, there is evidence now about how these companies had issued secret internal memos to get the very young addicted to smoking. Recently, it was discovered that the tobacco companies had persuaded the film industry in India with money, of course, to show a lot of smoking scenes so that the young would start imitating what the screen heroes do. 
here then is a glaring example of how for the sake of money a few unscrupulous people and corporations are prepared to take the whole of society for a ride when there is mass obesity or heavy incidence of lung cancer leading to thousands of preventable deaths who is it that pays for it society consider also the excessive display of violence in the cinema and tv i remember many years ago an american friend of mine who spent 25 years in india teaching physics in a college in madurai telling me he said do you know how many muggings holdups rapes murders etc a young person in america sees on tv from the time he or she is 5 to the age of 20 he then gave me an astounding number at all this the violence that is regular news like the iraq war and so forth and one gets a frightening picture i mean if a person grows up seeing violence in some form or the other day after day don't tell me it's not going to have any effect on the person tell all this to the media people and they retort if you don't like it you can switch off the tv can you not that might sound like a clever argument but the fact of the matter is that money power throws the average person into a deep gutter and tells him that he does not have to be in the gutter if he does not want to be there one may score debating points but where does that leave society so you see concern for society is a must and in vedic times this concern was built into the way of life i talked about marriage in an earlier talk marriage too was seen in vedic times as an instrument for the sustenance of society the couple married not merely to have children but more so for sustaining dharma in short the vedic norm of existence was always responsibility rather than rights acting with responsibility meant acting with restraint and that in turn meant having a mechanism for checks and balances so that there was moral stability wise people everywhere have underscored the importance of checks and balances in society the framers of the american constitution understood this very well they realized as did the people of england that there are three primary institutions that regulate government administration etc these are referred to as the three estates they are the executive branch the legislature and the judiciary the founding fathers of america took great pains to devise all kinds of checks and balances so that no one branch or estate could totally dominate all this happened towards the end of the 18th century that is in the late 1700s then came the newspapers and thus was born the so called fourth estate till about 75 years ago the fourth estate meant only newspapers but today the fourth estate is taken to mean the whole of the media which includes cinema tv internet and what not the interesting thing is that while the other three estates have mutual checks the fourth estate has none it is supposed to be self regulatory this is a right that the fourth estate has more or less seized aided and abetted by the courts thus freedom of the press has become a sacred mantra nobody dare say anything against it it has been elevated almost to the status of a divine right 
I will not say much about this issue, which incidentally is supposed to be a very sensitive issue. But the fact of the matter is, if the members of the fourth estate are supposed to be accountable only to themselves, then, like Shakespeare said, they must be true to themselves. Good journalists and reporters are no doubt true to themselves, but increasingly, one finds too many charlatans. What does one do in such circumstances? I remember a conversation I had about 20 years ago with a person who was then the vice chancellor of the university in the city of Indore. He said he was being hounded by a local reporter who was writing that he, the vice chancellor, was swindling money from the university and had lined the bathroom of his house with expensive marble. This man told me, I called the editor and said, Look, please come to my house and see for yourself if my bathroom is tiled with marble. If you did come and see, you would realize that your reporter is writing falsehood. The editor could not care less. Lamenting his fate, this vice chancellor then said to me, People say go to the court. How can I? I don't have that kind of money. The newspaper has a lot of money. It can employ a smart lawyer who will make the case drag on and on. Ultimately, I would be forced to withdraw my complaint after spending a lot of money on lawyer's fees. Others say go to the press council. That is all right in principle, but in practice the press council is always favorable to the media. So the long and short of it is that often if one falls foul with the media, then the media can literally bury that person. I am here reminded of a person who held a cabinet position in Ronald Reagan's administration in America. The press in America kicked up a big row against this person, corruption charges and all that. It was all over the front pages. This person's reputation was totally ruined and he had to quit in ignominy. Then followed a long inquiry at the end of which this person was honorably exonerated. The commission that inquired into the whole matter ruled that this man was the victim of character assassination. Okay, so what happened after that? Nothing. As this person said, his exoneration appeared as a small news item on the 18th page of newspapers. Few paid attention to it. What remained in people's mind was the guilt pronounced by the press on the front pages. What I am driving at is the connection between freedom and accountability as well as responsibility. I remember in the years after India got its freedom, Jawaharlal Nehru, the first Prime Minister, often used to say, freedom brings responsibility. But few paid attention to his words. The Indian constitution has been, in many respects, influenced by the US constitution. Thus, there is a lot of stuff about rights. However, Later, some elders realize that the constitution must, in the Indian tradition, also spell out the prime responsibility of the citizens. A committee was then set up and it came up with a list of mandatory rules. Unfortunately, however, when the matter came up for discussion before parliament, the members did not agree to amend the constitution to include the duties and responsibilities of citizens. What was finally adopted was a set of recommendatory responsibilities. In other words, Parliament said, Listen folks, 
we think it would be nice if you discharge the following duties but you don't have to if you don't feel like it i feel this absolutely amazing considering that the founding fathers of the indian constitution not only recommended satyameva jayate or truth alone triumphs as the national motto but also included the wheel of dharma in the flag to remind us of dharma i fail to understand how duties can be optional to declare duties to be optional is in my opinion utter nonsense this is where one must admire vedic society it made dharma mandatory for all from the king to the cobbler no one was exempt and one became answerable to one's conscience if one did not follow or abide by dharma remember what vedic acharyas told their disciples when they left the ashram they said satyam vada dharmam chara meaning always speak the truth and always abide by dharma incidentally these two vedic dictates are the motto of swami's university let me now get back to the hierarchy that i referred to earlier and say something more about it swami says that man is a limb of society society is a limb of nature and nature is a limb of god this is like saying the finger is a part of the hand the hand is a part of the forearm the forearm is a part of the total arm which is a part of the body now would the finger deliberately try to harm the body no way that being the case why should man who is a limb of society do things that harm society and nature he really should not and if he did it would not only be irresponsible but also a criminal act here we must appreciate an important point stated by krishna in the gita he says in effect that the whole world universe is heavily interconnected and every entity in some way or the other depends on other entities further all entities give and all entities also receive i have pointed all this out in one of my earlier talks it so happens that in god's scheme of things all entities except man are programmed to do what they are supposed to do thus they receive and also give but man is different he can either do what he is supposed to do or refrain from doing so in other words man will certainly accept but duck from giving krishna says that while man may have such freedom to do or not to do to refrain from discharging one's duty is a sin once man commits a sin he also has to pay for it there is no way of getting out of it few realize how important it is for everyone to discharge his or her duties properly the gita is all about doing one's duty properly and in the right spirit indeed until recently the concept of duty was underscored the world over thus it is that lord nelson famously said england expects every man to do his duty somehow these days few understand how vital the discharge of one's duty is railways airlines hospitals schools all such institutions would not run if the people employed there abandoned their duties by way of stressing this swami said in delhi in march 1999 that service does not mean sweeping the village streets but doing one's duty properly
Today in India, it is often said that if one tax rupee is spent for public purposes, only about 10 paisa worth actually reaches the public. The rest of it gets either wasted or swallowed on the way. This is appalling but true. People ask, how is this happening in a land where the avatars have repeatedly taken birth? Whatever happened to Satya, Dharma, etc.? The answer is simple. In the name of progress, we have cleverly packaged devotion into watertight compartments. We still perform worship, sometimes painstakingly. We also go regularly to the temples, offer token charity and so on. We offer flower and fruits to God. We go on pilgrimages and take dips in holy rivers. But is this what God wants? I would like you to recall a bhajan which begins with the words, Tina dukiyo se prem karo, mera sai prasanna hoga. Meaning, show love to the poor and the forlorn and my sai would be pleased. Yes, sai would be pleased if we saw God everywhere and offered love to him in some manner or the other. Take the Vedic attitude to work. The musician worshipped his instruments. The carpenter worshipped his instruments. Before starting on a task, the person said reverentially, Tasmai namaha karmane, meaning, I offer my obeisance to work. Work was regarded as worship and not something to be shirked. In short, people did honest work because they understood that that was the way to keep society going and they realized that if society moves smoothly, then they too would benefit. It is something like the way they meticulously observe traffic rules in America. They have millions and millions of cars there, but the drivers stick to rules. They stay in their lanes, they signal when changing lanes and so on. They do all this because they know that by following the rules, they in turn would be benefited. It's the same thing about standing in queues and so on. In India, people take a very different attitude. You can see it, for example, right in front of the Brindavan Ashram. Vehicles would be all the time jockeying for positions, sometimes in such a manner that they would even block the opposite lanes. People do not seem to be bothered about road rules. It always seems to be me and my advantage. Contrast all this with the Vedic philosophy. We often hear the chant, Sahana Vavatu, Sahana Vunaktu and all that. What does this mean? It essentially means, let us all cooperate and do things together. This is not only an eminently practical philosophy, but also the essence of spirituality. This year, the theme of the World Conference is going to be Unity, Purity and Divinity. Without unity, how can there be purity? And without purity, what chance do we have to attain divinity? That is, if we are at all interested in that. What I am driving at is that we should not just dismiss the Vedas summarily as something nice but not quite relevant to this day and age. On the contrary, I would say that the Vedas were actually designed for this age, though they were launched a long time ago. You do not have to take my word for it. Just reflect deeply and objectively and see what conclusion you come to. And then please let me know. I would be most interested in hearing your thoughts. You know how to reach me, don't you? Very easy. Just write to 
listener at radiosai.org. By the way, Radio Sai is one word. Thanks for listening. Jai Sai Ram. ಸಂಚೇಧ್ಯಸ್ಮೋಚ್ಚಾ ಮಾತೆಷನ್ನುಪಸತ್ತಾರೋಗ್ನೆಣತೆ ಬ್ರಾಹ್ಮಣ ಇಮೆ ಶಿವ ಅಗ್ನೆ ಸಂವರಣೆ ಸಪತ್ನಿಜಿಭಸ್ವೆ ಗಜೇ ಜಾಗೃಕ್ಯ ಪ್ರಯುಕ್ಷ